If you listen to Michigan Radio, you know Jen White. She's host of the NPR midday talk show, 1A. This is 1A. I'm Jen White. But for us, she is so much more. Born and raised in Detroit, Jen worked in public TV before becoming the local anchor for All Things Considered, right here at Michigan Radio. It's All Things Considered. I'm Jen White. She went on to host a daily news show and several podcasts at WBEZ in Chicago. Among her achievements, launching a little series called Making Oprah. Then, just a few months into the pandemic, Jen moved to Washington, D.C. to start with 1A. Today on the podcast, a conversation with Jen White about her Michigan roots, covering difficult news, and the importance of treats. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. I talked to Jen in front of a live audience at the University of Michigan's Rackham Auditorium this week. Let's take a listen. Would you please give a warm Michigan welcome to the returning Jen White? It's, it's really lovely to be home. Uh, this, is, this is really a, a lovely opportunity, and you have visited before, but it's been such a pleasure sort of having you around at the station. And uh, I've, I've just been mindful every time I've heard the show of your, your journey and, and what the past few years have been like for you. People may be aware that Jen moved to Washington, D.C. to take over hosting at 1A, which is the NPR-affiliated show produced out of WAMU. July 2020, I mean, nobody was doing anything, and here's, here's Jen moving up. All right. How has the merry-go-round been treating you? I'm here. I, you know, I feel like I feel like I feel like the move to DC, moving during a global pandemic. First of all, it was a choice. Choices were made. Um, fortunately, I have a very supportive husband um, who spent about ten years plus in DC. He did his uh, it's his college career there. He he started his journalism career there as well. He's a recovering journalist. That's what he says. <laughs> so he was he was excited about a move. So it, it wasn't a struggle, and his work moves with him. So that made it a lot easier for both of us. But when I got there, the building was was empty. Uh, WAMU was empty. It was me. I was there every day. Our engineer. At the time, Jake Cherry, he was there every day. And then our executive producer, Rupert, who's here with me as well, he was there a few days a week. But other than that, the station itself, nothing. It was just, so I, I spent the first year and a half um, really in solitude for a lot of the time. There were a couple of mice who showed up in the office just to say hello. So that was a treat. But what it did that I appreciate, if there's anything to appreciate about a global pandemic, was that it, it created a sort of solitude and distance from the uh, DC buzz and grind. It sort of kept me out of the Beltway because the Beltway wasn't active at the time. And the show, we really try to stay out of the Beltway. We try to, to connect with communities across the country. And so it created this interesting little little bubble for me that I appreciate. I, I didn't get thrown into the, the social 
part of DC right away. I really was able to come in and just focus on the work. And now that people are starting to return to some sense of, of normalcy, that process is happening, but it's happening very gradually. And as someone who's not a natural extrovert, <laughs> that's, that's been really, really helpful. It's been really, really helpful. I think uh, one thing people don't always get about radio is that it can be a very solitary form of work, mm -hmm. even when you have a team and even when you have a good team. But wow, yeah. just to think about that is really something. Lots of Zoom meetings. Can, do, would you indulge me in a little fill in the blank? Sure. Uh, I, I think those of you who uh, are still here and holding on uh, can certainly can certainly think about the many things that have happened during Jen's tenure at 1A and how she has how she has been a medium for incredibly difficult things that have been going on. Can can I just if we can do a little fill in the blank here? The news event I didn't see coming that I've had to cover in the past three years would have to be? Does it have to be one thing? <laughs> I have to say the insurrection. I mean, that, that was, we had warnings and we were, we were watching for something to happen, but the intensity, um, the way certain lawmakers aligned themselves with the insurrectionists, the scope of it, there was, it was just, it was stunning. It was stunning and coming out, I was, I remember leaving the office that day and my husband called me and said, you need to, you need to get home. And I said, I'm, we're far away, we're not seeing anything where we are, it's fine. But I walked out of my office and I saw two men walking down the street with one of those giant flags, like not a norm, normal size flag, but a flag that's the size of four of these tables. And they were, they were so gleeful. And I just felt this, my stomach just sunk. Because I was like, what are, what are we going to do tomorrow on the show? How are we going to talk about this? How are we going to help people process what happened? How are we going to talk about this in the next month, the next six months, the next year? And in that moment, the weight of the work we do just felt incredibly heavy. How are we going to help our team process it, right? Because they're all watching it play out as well. And a couple of weeks before the insurrection, um, my husband and I would take walks around the National Mall, take our dogs out and just sort of let them wander through and, and sniff around. And it was just open and people were out. And when we drove through that same area that next weekend, seeing the barricades up around the Capitol, seeing the gates, seeing um, the military personnel, None of that had been there. And I said, oh, okay, so everything's different now. Everything's different now. Uh, I was, uh, one of the realizations of that day for me was just how many Americans, and people on my team was really a media concern, like you say, trying to figure out how to, how to talk to, you know, coworkers about what was happening. 
there, there's, there are generations of Americans not old enough to remember 9-11 and not remembering that kind of news event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Did you... Were there things that, that you did find in the subsequent days and weeks and months that you felt... I mean, there are some things that defy explanation in, in this line of work, but were there things that you felt really did land as you were listening to, you know, reading the comments that were coming in and listening to them? How did you feel like you could, you could provide something that would help people reckon with what was going on? Yeah. I think one of the most important things we did was just provide people with a platform to express themselves um, and to feel like they were being heard, to call in. I, am I remembering correctly, Rupert, that we did, a, we did a call in the next day? And just, just the anguish and the voices of some, of some of our callers, it was important because I think for someone sitting somewhere else in the country who was feeling the same way and maybe questioning, am I, am, am I being ridiculous by feeling this hurt? <laughs> by feeling this distressed? Yeah. To hear someone else express it, it's like, oh no, this is serious. Our democracy is in danger. We, we have to be vigilant. We, we have to hold power to account in whatever ways we can. And for me, that was, that was incredible, incredibly important. But what was also important was tracing how we got there and really mapping out how little it really was a surprise that there had been warnings from national security experts about this event happening, that the former president had been pretty clear in a lot of his speech about his intentions but also that there had been a seed of distrust sown in the process, the voting process, the process we hold dear. And that seed had been planted in communities and states that were red and blue. There are so many Republican elections officials we spoke to who were bewildered, bewildered by this turn of events. Because they're like, I come to the office every day and I do the work of making sure every person's vote counts. But I'm under attack too by members of my own party. So really walking our audience through, like this, this, is, <laughs> this is how we got from A to Z and here are the things that can be done to help us course correct, uh, to lift the veil on, on the, what some people think is a, is a complicated process, but in a lot of places it's not. You can actually go watch it happen. You can actually go watch it happen. Um, and, and to try to dispel some of the disinformation um, that, been, that had been deliberately spread about the election and, and continues to be spread. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of folks within the reach of our voices are probably thinking about the April 30th event at the state capitol in Lansing, the dress rehearsal. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, there, if you would fill in the blank again, the thing that helps get me through my day 
as the host of a national news show is? It's, again, it's not singular. <laughs> the things are coffee, <laughs> copious amounts of coffee. Um, my team, I have an incredible, incredible team. Uh, our executive producer, again, Rupert Allman, this group of ambitious, creative, um, passionate producers who bring their brains and their hearts to the work, who are willing to tackle difficult subjects, um, who <laughs> bring me treats sometimes, <laughs> and, you know, and are just- They better. And are, well, we share treats. I bring them treats too, but there's a, there's a generosity of spirit on our team. And in the times when the work we do gets heavy, there, there have been a few shows, um, when I've had to filter or process the emotions of our guests or the people who are calling in, just really heavy subjects. And I try not to be too porous, but sometimes um, it breaks through. And I'll, I mean, holding on <laughs> with my nails and my teeth, just trying not to break down before the hours up and as soon as my mic is closed I just dissolve and usually it's the first hour of the show so I've got like six minutes to get myself together to a second hour okay culture club right exactly exactly <laughs> let's talk about movies um but the producer will come in and just wrap me up and hug me and and just be present and that's the kind of culture we have on our team. We have each other's backs. Um, I always say doing live radio is like walking a tightrope. You'll know this, that occasionally someone will skip along and light on fire. And <laughs> producers, producers are the net. They're the net. They're the people who make sure you don't, you don't fall. Well said. You mentioned... Your mom is watching. I think so. I hope so. I, my mom is watching too. And my mom always asks me, how do you know so much about all these subjects? <laughs> I've always taken great comfort from the fact that these are things that we all can learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about hosting is you have to be, you have to know enough to be dangerous. Know enough to know what you right. don't know. Exactly. And you can't, it's, this is the, the guidance I give any, any host I'm working with, any of the people I mentor, is don't be afraid not to know. Don't be afraid to ask a question. Don't assume because you say, actually, you kind of lost me on that. Can you go back and explain it again? That's not you, you know, nobody's going to judge you for not knowing. And in fact, if you don't know it, there's probably a bunch of people in the audience who don't know it either. You don't lose anything by asking the question. The number of times we'll have an expert on and they'll rattle off some series of letters and numbers combined and just breeze on past it. And in that, in that moment, as a host, you, you make the decision like, am I going to pretend I know what that is? <laughs> or I'm going to ask them to explain it. Or... Maybe I do know what it is, but I'm not going to assume anybody else does. 
And it's, it's one of yeah. the things I most appreciate about your hosting is you. your invitations to all of us throughout the conversations. That's, that's the core of the show. That's the core of the show. For sure. You know, uh, this is, I think, a related topic. There's a thing that happens when you're doing a new show five days a week, and the topics are coming at you constantly, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of develop random access memory brain. I, I do wonder how the sheer volume of, of your workflow these days is sitting with you and how you're dealing with it. I don't know if this is good for my long-term memory or not, but I've learned to compartmentalize so I will hold what I need in my brain for that show, for those two hours, for that day. Because the next day, I have to hold another body of knowledge in, in my brain. And every now and then, I'll be in a conversation, and I'll pull some random fact on it. I'm like, where did that come from? It's like, oh, we did a show about that three months ago, you know? But it, it, is, it is a churn. The one thing I figured out early on that I needed to do to sustain myself is to have time when I really turn work off. Um, that I have time when it's just like for this hour, hour and a half, it's just me and the dogs. <laughs> and I'm not listening to anything news related. It's going to be music or a podcast that has nothing to do with the news. And on the weekend, Saturday mornings, I love it. My husband usually sleeps in a little bit or he's just sort of, you know, tinkering around upstairs. The dogs get up early. I have my coffee and I either read or just watch a little bit of something on television or, but just things that sort of keep me quiet and contained. It allows my brain to rest a bit. Um, But I figured out early on, you cannot, you can't be on that hamster wheel 24 seven. You can't and, and maintain um, any semblance of, of a life or, or sanity. I don't think you really show up particularly well when you, when you do it all the time. We need to take a break. More with Jen White in a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. I was so grateful during the, the pandemic. I know that you arrived at 1A in, in summer, so it was July. I think some of us had stopped washing our groceries at that point, but... You know, it was terrifying. Yeah. All right, can we just say this? It was, it was terrifying. And we still didn't know a lot. And uh, I, <laughs> even though I do this work myself, I do cling to hosts that, I, that I, I love and I trust in times like that and see how they're doing. The show really 
lives and breathes with the listener voices that are part of the conversation. What was it like to be a medium for all the fears and the uncertainties of that time? It was terrifying. Um, I remember when the pandemic first started and we started to, to get those stay-at-home orders and I started doing my Chicago show from home and those early questions we would get about the virus and, and how to control it. One question that stands out to me is an older gentleman wrote in or called in and asked, he said, well, what I'm doing right now is I'm taking my mail and I'm putting it, I wear gloves, take it and put it in the microwave and I microwave it for a, 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 you know, 30 seconds. And I was like, wait, is that a good idea? I mean, I, I didn't know either. And so, you know, but we had experts and we put it to the experts and they explained, you know, the, the proper way to, to handle the mail and everything. And now we're in this new phase when we're trying to figure out how to exist in this sort of weird in-between place. You know, we were trying to figure out how our lives have changed for good or not. Um, and for that space in between, <laughs> the responsibility of getting it right, um, of just, because the science was, was being updated, it was, it was changing as we learned more, and I knew people were listening to the show because they were concerned about their lives and not in some existential way. For some people, there were real life and death issues they were dealing with. You know, I think about my, my mom and I didn't see my mother in person for two years. And it makes me emotional now just to think about it. But we had to wait. We waited until she was vaccinated and I was vaccinated and the household was vaccinated. You know, we, we waited and then we isolated for two. We, we did all of these things because we wanted to make sure mom was safe. Um, and a lot of people were making those decisions. And because we were the place people would go to connect with experts who were on the cutting edge of the science and get those questions answered, the responsibility of that, of getting, getting it right, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. But the fact that people trusted our show and came to us as a place to get that information was, was incredibly encouraging and heartening to know that the people trusted us with that. Hey, Jen, uh, during that time, uh, I think it was mostly while you were in Chicago, Black Detroit was in crisis. And I just wondered how your, your whole life in the community was informing the work that you were doing around the pandemic, both in Chicago and then later in Washington, mm -hmm. nationally. My, my roots were and remain very deep in Detroit. And early in the pandemic, um, a group of family members got very ill. Um, two were hospitalized, um, one was intubated, and it got real, you know, it got real very quickly. But then I, the number of elders in, in my life, um, the parents of friends who, who died, um, 
And in Chicago, where there's already this life expectancy gap, um, for my colleagues there who were watching those same dynamics play out among their family and friends, if, if the pandemic did anything, hopefully it revealed something that I as a native Detroiter already knew. And that's the fact that if you are black in this country, people don't expect you to live as long as other people. It's a reality. If you look at the maternal mortality gap for black women, black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. These are things we knew because we lived with it. We lost uncles in their 50s and 40s. We had friends who had strokes in their 40s and are living with the effects of that for the rest of their lives. I mean, these, these were realities. And so it gave me a chance to say, okay, yes, we are in a pandemic and we're seeing these dynamics play out, but this isn't new. This isn't new, it just reveals what has always been here and we have a chance to fix it. Michigan felt very keyed into this truth uh, you know, because the Whitmer administration was pretty serious about it. Mm-hmm. But do you feel like the national media really got it? To a degree, right? I, I feel like people heard it, and there are some groups that are trying to respond. But where it gets sticky and really tangled is so much of the American identity is wrapped up in the idea of individual responsibility. And so you can talk about systemic breakdowns that lead to a disparity in health outcomes. And the first question that's asked isn't, okay, well, why do those disparities exist? Where are the breakdowns? What are the systems that can be fixed? The first question that's asked is, well, why are you eating that way? Well, why don't they lose weight? Why are you going to church during a pandemic? Why are you going to church during the pandemic? Why do you live in that neighborhood? Why do you, why do you, why do you, as if all of us don't exist within this history and (laughs) all of these systems and the things we've come to accept as normal, we all live in it. It just impacts us differently. And so that's, that's where I'm still feeling a lot of resistance is there's this need to make the individual responsible. And it's not to say that there isn't individual responsibility. Sure there is. But if you're not addressing the systemic breakdowns, you might get an individual or a handful of individuals who are able to change, succeed in spite of, but is that what we really want? For people to live and succeed and flourish in spite of our systems? Is that what we want as a country? And I think that's something we have to, we have to ask ourselves and be really honest about. Lest we forget, I don't know how fun it is coming on board a flagship NPR show in a time when, as, as a black woman, when there have been a number of departures from the network and uh, 
a, a renewal of a long and painful discussion about disparities within our own fields. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and some very specific problems with retention that, by the way, are not limited to NPR or any member station that, that you could name, I think. I think we can still say that, unfortunately. And to do so just a couple of months after George Floyd's murder, when the entire country was a raw nerve, well, at, at least many people were a raw nerve over, over everything that was happening. Um, thank you for sticking with the industry, but why, have you, why are you sticking with our industry? I started in this work because it was the place where my joy um, f of talking to people, my joy for talking to people and engaging with people, um, despite the fact that I'm not really an extrovert, and my creativity and my um, performer, I would say, the performer in me, I did a lot of theater when I was here in Ann Arbor, where it intersected with my interest in public policy and politics and the lived experience of people. It intersected in this place. I ended up in public radio because I was introduced to it when I was 16. Uh, my sister introduced it to me uh, through Car Talk. That was that was my first public radio show. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I love this story. I love this story. And some people be like, I know she tells the story all the time. I do because I love it. My sister Dana was an engineer at General Motors, and we were driving somewhere one weekend, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, there's this show you got to hear. There's these two brothers. They're hilarious. They they have these accents." but they're really smart, they went to MIT and they give people car advice, and I'm just looking at her like, what are you talking about? But we listened to this show across the entire drive and I was just laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing, and I just kept listening. So that's how I was introduced to public radio, and I fell in love with it, I fell in love with it. Um, but I'm, I'm in this work now because I was raised by parents who made service central to the culture of our family. My dad was a minister, and by extension, so was my mother. Um, but he was not the kind of minister who liked to speak. He hated. What? He hated, hated, hated speaking. He would do it when he had to, but that was not the kind of ministry he enjoyed. He was about people. Like the, um, a one-on-one -on -one connection with yeah, people. looking after people. We always had extra mouths in our house. They parented so many kids who were not theirs. He would go with my mom, they would go visit the widows, and we would go to nursing homes to visit people we knew there, but they would say, go talk to the other people. Um, that was my father's spirit. And as he aged, and he, he had polio as a child and, and had a series of strokes later that um, led to, to vascular dementia. But So he was in a wheelchair uh, near the end of his life, and they would get in the car, and they'd go visit somebody in the hospital, and 
Mom would push Dad in his wheelchair to continue to visit people, to minister to them in that way. That's what I grew up with. So that desire to be of service is, it's just a part of who I am. And it's not because I'm some wonderful person. That's how I was raised. I think as long as I feel like I can be of service, I'll stay. We are so grateful. Oh, well, I'm grateful you're willing to listen. (laughs) And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes for streaming anytime at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.